Good morning, Redeemer. It's great to be here. I love Fridays, and I love Fridays when we have communion. Uh, it's, it's just a wonderful time uh, to remember who God is, who Jesus is, uh, together in the community. When I was young, I wanted to fly. My father was in the Navy, and he flew helicopters. I wanted to fly helicopters, too, because they're really cool. Uh, they, you know, you have to... They have altitude and they have uh, attitude and pitch and roll and, and yaw and all these different things that you have to control to keep the thing in the air. And if any one of those things goes wrong, it can come crashing to the ground. One of the amazing things about flying is what you see. You, you see things you never were, would if you were limited to land or sea. You know how it is. You're, everyone that's here has flown here. And uh, if, if you've ever gotten the window seat, uh, you know, you're sitting there and you're looking out and as the plane's taking off, it's, hey, there's, there's Shakeside Road and, and there's the Burj Al Arab and, wow, it really does look like a cross from this side. But I had two problems. One was uh, an ear problem, the other a heart problem. And unfortunately, I was never able to be a pilot in the Navy. I was never allowed to fly. But Mark's purpose in writing his gospel is to give us what flying does. It gives us that aerial perspective to, to see Jesus and his true identity. The book starts kind of rocket-like, actually, not with a complete sentence, but with what appears to be a title. It says, the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. The first several verses move quickly to tell of this one strange fellow who dresses funny, he has a peculiar diet, and he's calling out into the wilderness for people to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. You'd think such a guy wouldn't be taken seriously like those often predicting judgment days. But actually, many people do respond to John. And why? Why do they respond? It's because in Judah at that time, there was an expectancy, an expectancy for the promised coming Messiah. Within a few verses, Jesus does appear. And with an entrance that's really seen better from our airborne reader experience than maybe those that were on the ground with him at the time, when it says that he came up out of the water and immediately the heavens were opened and the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, a voice came from heaven. And said, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. And after his victory over Satan, Jesus begins that ministry of revelation. Proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Over the past several months, actually, we here at Redeemer have been going through Mark chapter by chapter, bit by bit, and I want to take us back in, in maybe that 10,000 meter perspective to, to look back at how we have seen Jesus' identity displayed through his authority. Twelve things. The authority to call the disciples to follow him. Authority in teaching. Authority over demons. Authority over sickness, authority over his plans 
and his popularity. Authority over disease and physical deformities. Authority to forgive sin, which God alone can do. Authority over the Sabbath, and, and thus, he, in, a, in a sense, he puts himself over the law, even. Authority over death as he raises people from the dead. He transfers that authority to the twelve when he sends them out. And he has authority in multiplying bread like manna in the wilderness. And finally, we saw he had authority over nature when he calmed the storm. Last week, we looked at his identity as Messiah when Peter answered that question, Who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, You are the Messiah. It's at that climax in Mark's gospel where I want to just grab Peter and say, Yes, Peter, you got it. You got it. And you can almost hear Jesus thinking it too as he moves on to tell them plainly about his suffering, his death, and his rising again. And then the letdown. Peter's understanding of what Messiah means to him is, is not at all what Jesus means with Messiah. And our Lord responds with that strong rebuke and the very important words that we should hear as well. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Still, Jesus doesn't call the whole thing off. Rather, He calls them to a radical life when He says, Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And then he reveals, I tell you the truth, some are standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Which brings us right to our text today. We're stepping across, see, this major division in Mark's gospel. 16 chapters, chapter 1 through 8, that first half, Jesus' identity as Messiah is... Uh, revealed really as Peter says, you are the Messiah. In the last half, which we're just stepping into, his identity as the Son of God will ultimately be acknowledged by the centurion at the foot of the cross. As we read the text for today, I want you to consider Mark's purpose in writing this gospel to reveal Jesus. And the parallels with the first chapter We'll see the kingdom being talked about. We'll hear a voice from heaven calling him son. John the Baptist, as Elijah, encounters with the demonic and a revelation of Jesus' identity and purpose. You'll also be helped uh, to consider a couple themes that we'll see as we read through the text that form the outline for the message today. Listen to Jesus and believe in Jesus. Let's read Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. We're only going to read till verse 13 at this point. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. 
Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done every, to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Jesus takes these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, up the mountain. This mountain is uh, it, right outside of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, it's uh, on the border. It's, Caesarea Philippi is where they've just come from. This mountain's on the border of Jewish and Gentile territory. It's in the modern-day area right on the border of Syria and, and Israel. The uh, Golan Heights are there. There these three see Jesus transfigured before them. His face shone and his clothes became brilliantly white. It's that, that radiance, that brilliance that would later be seen when the angels are at the, at the um, tomb, the empty tomb. Or when Moses is coming down from the mountain just from being in the presence of God and his face was radiant. It is the radiance of God's glory. And then Moses and Elijah begin talking with Jesus. In, in Luke's account of this very same event, we actually find out what they were talking about. They were talking about his approaching uh, departure, his death and his resurrection. It is interesting to note that both Moses and Elijah met God on a mountain, similar to this one. Both saw God's glory pass before them just as we see here. And both heard his audible voice. Both Moses and Elijah left this world in a very strange, uh, well, unusual ways. Moses was buried by God in Moab, where Jude tells us later that the angel Michael disputed with Satan over Moses' bones. And Elijah? Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. Elijah... Elijah represents all the prophets and Moses the law. So here we have all the revelation of God, the law and the prophets standing right here before these disciples. Well, pragmatic Peter is quick to speak, quick to act, and slow to listen. Three of us? Three of you guys? Hey, Let's build three tents, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. We've got the law, the prophets, the Messiah. We've got it all here, Jesus. Next up, we'll take the temple and then Rome. But you see what these disciples didn't understand was who Jesus was. And they didn't understand who they themselves were. Jesus is no equal with Moses and Elijah. He is the fulfillment of all that they represent. He's the fulfillment 
of the law and the fulfillment of the prophets. And the disciples, they're not worthy to build God anything. As the psalmist says, who is man that you are mindful of him? And even to King David, God said, will you build me a house? Perhaps Peter had in mind what most Jews anticipating the Messiah would. That word from Moses when he told the people, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him. Interesting then that after the conversation with Moses and Elijah, God himself comes in a cloud just like he came to the people of Israel centuries before and testifies of Jesus. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. You can't get a better referral than that. Who wouldn't want to have that on their CV or as an author to have it as an endorsement on the back of your book? Well, then suddenly they look around and only Jesus is left. Because it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. You know, without any introductions... Somehow these disciples know that Jesus is talking with Moses and with Elijah. They see the glory of God as Jesus is transfigured before them. They hear the voice from the cloud and yet somehow they miss the significance of what just happened. They miss who Jesus is and why he's come. On the way down the mountain, Jesus reminds them through the scriptures what he's just told them six days before. Apparently, perhaps they forgot that the Messiah must suffer and be rejected, be killed, and on the third day rise from the dead. Like the disciples, I think we'd rather stay on that mountain as well. We're we're quick to avoid Struggle, pain, and suffering, preferring the benefits of heaven right now. And, and, and heaven is something that we look forward to. Heaven is something that we're, we're striving for. But sometimes we long for it before it's time. We, or, or we want it now, in, in the now. It, we, we see this in the way that our lives are lived. We're, we're working for the weekend or we're, or we're planning for our retirement. We want heaven now rather than deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That was Jesus' call to his first disciples, three of whom are right here with him on the mountain. Follow me. Have you considered where following him might lead you? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he will be rejected where he will suffer, and where he'll be killed on a cross. Are you ready to follow? Are you ready to deny yourself, take up your cross? Now, Christian, I'm not talking about that old saying. You know the one, uh, say, uh, a spouse who's not willing to confront sin in the house or, or someone who's run up their credit card bills and says, oh, it's just my cross to bear. No, we're not, we're not talking about about that kind of a cross. 
Now, taking up the cross that Jesus is talking about is not about personal suffering that comes by sin or by bad choices. Taking up one's cross is about carrying in us the death of Christ till He comes. It means dying to sin and cutting off those things that cause sin in our lives. It, it means in humility valuing others better or above ourselves. It means submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So let's consider, Christian, what, what might it look like to take up one's cross? Our friend Peter uh, actually gives us a great example for this. Now, we often make fun of Peter's blunders and his, his misspeaks and how he steps out before everybody else. Uh, and, and sometimes it's, it's, it's easy for us to make fun of him. We know how Peter, in Jesus' final hour, even denied that he even knew Christ. But see how Peter was transformed after the resurrection. Peter is a different man when Jesus uh, is fully revealed in him. In Acts, we see Peter refuse to recant his faith as he stands before the very same council that killed Jesus. After being ridiculed and flogged, it says, they left rejoicing because they were, had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And Peter encourages us in 1 Peter chapter 4. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Another example of taking up one's cross is the way that some of our small groups care for one another. I, I was just talking this week with Alan Andrews, uh, who we prayed, for, we prayed for his wife Melissa this morning, who's suffering with her health, her back. He told me about how their small group is doing an outstanding job in caring for them. Alan said of their community, I don't know if the other small groups function this way, but ours has gone above and beyond in loving us and taking care of us. Our small group has been incredible. I don't know if we'd be here today if it weren't for the way that they've cared for us. Friends, that's what it means to take up one's cross. It means to follow the way of Jesus. As we continue in chapter 9, Mark is deliberate in the parallels that he's making with chapter 1. After the announcement of, by God's voice from the cloud, just like in chapter 1, he enters straight away into a conflict with the demonic. As we read this final portion of our text, I want you to feel the emotion. Feel the emotion of the, of the characters, the different characters. The pain of a father, the frustration of Jesus, the wonder of the crowd, the dismay of the disciples. And listen for Jesus' exclamations and his questions as they will help us. Picking up in verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. 
A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Mark vividly helps us grasp the intensity of this situation. Beginning in in the former passage with the wow of Jesus' transfiguration and seeing Moses and Elijah hearing God's voice, then Jesus commands the disciples to be silent about their mountaintop experience until the Son of Man will rise from the dead. Something the disciples are confused about. And interestingly, uh, a contrast to the deaf and mute spirit in that father's young son. Then there's this letdown. Uh, and coming down from the heights of that mountain to the crowds and the arguments below. It reminds me of when Moses is coming down with the tablets of God in his hands to the sounds of revelry and the demonic worship of a golden calf. But the most heart-wrenching detail is that of a father desperate for his son's deliverance. You know, being from the region of the Decapolis, this father likely heard about Jesus from the man from whom the the legion of demons was cast out. If Jesus could deliver that man from thousands of demons, surely he could deliver one out of my son. So with hope and faith, he brought his son to the teacher. But Jesus himself was not present. Now, disciples are supposed to have the the knowledge and share in the knowledge and understanding of their teachers. So surely Jesus' disciples, who, who actually had previously performed such deliverance from demons, surely they could do something. But they could not drive out the demon. And with no hint of compassion... This father and son are shoved to the sidelines of the crowd by the argumentative Pharisees and the dismayed disciples. 
And when Jesus does arrive on the scene, he seems distracted by this amazed crowd and the fight in which his disciples are engaged. But Jesus' question about the argument gives the Father his chance. Teacher, I brought you my son. But your disciples could not drive out the Spirit. Jesus seems frustrated. And now with his son slipping into another big fit, the father's not sure if anyone has the ability or the compassion to help at all. This is where Jesus' exclamations help us get the gist of the passage. His first exclamation highlights the root problem. Oh, unbelieving generation, the core problem is unbelief. In his second exclamation, if you can, Jesus challenges the Father's misunderstanding about Jesus' identity and his character. Now consider that we've just seen Jesus at the mountaintop where God the Father says, this is my Son whom I love, listen to him, and now contrast it with this Father, this earthly Father who's questioning both the power and the compassion of Christ. As Jesus challenges the Father's assumption, the Father cries out in his mustard seed faith, praying to Jesus, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Do you see it? There's a, there's a prayer. Help me, he cries. And to whom does he pray? He prays to Jesus. And Jesus answers his prayer. The demon violently exits his son, and his son now appears to be dead on the floor. We don't know. Perhaps he, perhaps he was. But reminiscent of that event with Jairus' daughter, Jesus reaches out his hand, takes the boy by the hand, and lifts him to his feet, resurrecting as it were, this young one from the dead. The disciples, when they were coming down the mountain, remember they were, they were questioning, what does rising from the dead mean? And here, Jesus gives them a visual example. of What it means when he raises the boy who appeared dead and returns him to his father's side. If you've ever been in that place, like this father undone, alone, confused. Understand, God does care. And He is able. But He will also challenge the core problem, the core problem in us. Today, if you are not Jesus' disciple, your problem is not your problems. Your problem is unbelief. Dear friend, listen to Jesus. Repent from your sin of unbelief and follow Him. He is the promised Messiah, like we see in chapters 1 through 8. He's the Son of God, like we're going to see in the next eight chapters. And when He points to His suffering, His death, it's more than an example. It has purpose in that He has purchased our peace with God and has given to us eternal life. 
His rising from the dead confirms everything that he said and he did. And now we have witnesses throughout the ages, like those Peter, James, and John that were were there on the mountaintop with him, to people here even right in our midst. People like Raul Santos. People like Hassan Froat. People like Max Stiles. Each giving testimony to the power of this good news to make us right with God. If you cannot say with total confidence that when you stand in the day of judgment that you will be welcomed by God, then hear the testimony that we proclaim. There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Friends, God is holy, just, He's perfect. And we are full of sin. We're we're full of ourselves. And we come under God's right judgment against our rebellion. In love, He makes a way through Jesus' death to be both just, in that He punishes sin, and the justifier giving us His righteousness for those who come to Him by faith. If you get the sense that I'm talking to you right now, one, we're encouraged that you're here to to listen to this message about Jesus and to experience the, the community of faith as we worship this God. Perhaps, though, today is the day you no longer observe from the outside but enter in and join the family of faith. Entering into this family with God begins by asking, and you can do this today. Pray. Tell God. Tell Jesus that you're sorry for your rebellion against Him. Turn away from your rebellion and follow Him. And then, if you would, share it with me. Share it with one of the elders or or maybe even with a trusted Christian friend that brought you here so that we can rejoice with you. Jesus has shown His compassion not only in the deliverance of this Son, but also with the Father in His problem of faith. Jesus has not only shown compassion with the Father and the Son, but He's also helping the disciples in their weakness. Upon entering the house, the disciples asked Jesus, why could we not cast out the demon? Earlier, they had. They had done that before. They had actually been sent out by Jesus. They proclaimed uh, that people should repent and healed people of various sicknesses and diseases. They'd actually cast out demons before. His reply, this kind can come out only by prayer, reveals a few things. One is that the disciples were relying on their, their own devices, their own strength and not on the authority that Jesus had given them. And we see this probably more clearly in that rather than pray, they're arguing with the Pharisees. Family of faith, we need to pray. We need to pray. I love how we pray in the services. And as David said earlier, let's pray big things because we have a big God. And we can even bring our small things. We can bring all things to this God because He cares, 
Maybe you felt your problems are too big for Jesus. Or perhaps you feel like, oh, he could do something, but, you know, surely he's got other things, bigger things to worry about than my little petty problems. Nuclear disasters in Japan, volcanoes in Iceland, wars and rumors of war, famine, poverty, despotic dictators, the persecution of his church. I've just got bills to pay, or a wayward child, or my marriage that's struggling, or I've lost a job, or I've got career decisions to make, failing health, or my pension plan. Can Jesus do anything about all that? Will he take pity and help? Friend, if if you're feeling that, then Jesus' second exclamation is for you. If you can, it's as if Jesus were saying, are you serious? Consider who I am. Friend, he's the, he's the God of compassion. He's the Father of all comfort. His, our concerns are not too big for God, and he is not too busy to take notice. He does not sleep, and he does not slumber, and he is not like us. He's not like our fathers. As good as some of our fathers may have been, listen to Jesus as he says, if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? He's a father who loves his children perfectly. He provides for those in need. He's a defender of the weak. His kindness leads us to repentance. So is your faith weak? Do you need to confess unbelief? Do you need to pray like this father prayed? I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Ask Jesus. Now, one teaching that's come out of this passage and others like it that needs to be corrected is that The answer to your prayers depends on the quantity or the measure of your faith. There there are even seminars on how you can kind of muster up more faith. And and some some people have thought that there's even two kinds of faith. But listen, there's those kinds of thinking lead us to create new idols. What I mean by that is we start putting faith in faith rather than faith in Christ. So you see, the object of our faith is more important than the quantity or the quality of our faith. Tim Keller, in his book, King's Cross, The Story of the World in the Life of Jesus, puts it this way. Imagine you're falling off a cliff, and sticking out of the cliff is a branch that's strong enough to hold you, but you don't know that it's strong enough to hold you. As you fall, you have just enough time to reach out and grab that branch How much faith do you have to have in the branch for it to save you? Must you be totally sure that it can save you? No, of course not. You only have to have enough faith to grab the branch. That's because it's not the quality of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith. It doesn't matter how you feel about the branch. All that matters is, There's the branch. 
And the branch is Jesus. Keller goes on to say, if you want to believe but can't, stop looking inside. Go to Jesus and say, help me believe. Or as our passage says, help me with my unbelief. Go to him and say, so you're the one who gives faith. I've been trying to work it out by reasoning, by thinking and meditating and going to church in hopes of a sermon that will move me. I've been trying to get faith all by myself. Now I see that you're the source of faith. Please give it to me. If you do that, you'll find that Jesus has been seeking you. He's the author of faith, the provider of faith, the object of faith. And as as Dirk uh, Coetzee came up to me just after the last service, he said that Jesus is also the subject of our faith. He's who we talk about when we talk about faith. We get the idea that Jesus knows that those around him don't fully understand in this, in this moment who he is and why he's come. And he is patient with them. He's you see, he's giving them all the pieces that they need now so that later, in the fullness of time, when, when his death and resurrection has occurred, he will put it all together for them so that they can respond to him in faith. And we see that that is, in fact, what happened with Peter. Riding towards the end of his life, Peter does tell about that event on the mountain. Remember, Jesus says, Don't talk about this thing until after the Son of Man rises from the dead. Peter does tell about it in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to Him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Being a pilot for me was, was impossible because of my ear and my heart. But in reality, I had far greater problems. My greater problem was that I was dead. I was dead in my sins. I needed ears to hear and a heart to believe the gospel. And in 1986, the summer of 86, God gave that to me. I'm so glad. Peter, in that same book, in 2 Peter, a little earlier, he says that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him, Jesus, who has called us by His own glory and goodness. And in our passage today, we see that on the mountain, God spoke what is needed for every ear to hear concerning His Son Jesus. Listen to Him. And in the valley, Jesus follows by a teaching of what is needed for every heart. That believing in Him is the solution to every problem we face. He is our answer. So my dear brothers and sisters, as we read earlier in the service, let me remind us, 
See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so amazed and grateful that you have preserved your word so that we could hear, so that we could see and respond to you. Lord, we thank you that you, you, Lord, are the God of all comfort, the Father of all compassion. Lord, I thank you that we can bring our concerns, our prayers, our petitions with thanksgiving before you and the peace of God that transcends all all understanding will in fact guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Oh Jesus, guide us in the path of salvation. Guide us in that path which is you. Lord, I pray that we would not have sinful, unbelieving hearts that turn away from you, Lord God. Lord, if there are those here that have heard your voice, may they not harden your heart. May we all come to you with soft hearts, ready to apply that which you have given to us. Lord, may we truly follow you as you lead us from this place. Lord, thank you for the joy of heaven that stands before us, that gives us the courage to endure anything that happens in this life. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.